Are you trying to get more leads? Have you thought about Facebook ads? Or maybe you have tried Facebook ads, but it's not converting the way you want. Well, enter Super Spicy Media. Longtime friend of the show and many time guest, Moitza Mars goes over how to create a Facebook advertising funnel for free in her guide on how to do exactly that. So whether you're trying to get more leads or just increase the conversions of your Facebook ads, this is definitely a product for you. Like I said, it's free. If you go to devchat.tv slash super spicy, you can pick it up right now. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 261 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And we are answering questions from you, our listeners, and other people with whom we associate in our day-to-day jobs, and random people we meet on the street. Okay, probably not so much of that. Um, so we had all sorts of questions uh, from listeners to the show, and uh, I know Philip and Jonathan have coaching programs, and I'm sometimes helping out people in their work. And so we're going to collect, we're going to take a bunch of these questions and ask them, answer them. I should add, by the way, if you ever have questions that you want us to address on the show, please do contact us. Uh, the email address and ways to contact us are in the show notes, and we'll be delighted to uh, take them up at some point in a future show. So, Jonathan, uh, maybe you should start with a question yes. that you've got there. Sure. Sort of a greatest hit. Yeah. <laughs> Recent <laughs> questions. Um, okay. First question comes in from Mr. C, who asks... <laughs> Hey, Jonathan, I'm wondering how you'd handle a situation such as the following. When you sell someone an app or a website, do you offer any kind of maintenance package with it? This is a common question, so I thought it would be a good a good place to start. Do you? What about you, Ruben? When you, uh, do you sell maintenance packages? So, no. I mean, look, I, I don't do that much development anymore, but I do have an employee who does. Um and we are, and it's good that there's several thousand miles separating us. Um, we actually just charge them by the hour. Uh, so basically, um, like so, so, so basically, development, maintenance, the whole business just falls into the same hopper. I think if I were to mm-hmm. do it again, or like if I had a new client working on stuff like this, then we'd probably just like do some sort of monthly, you know, retainer um, because they do tend to have mm-hmm. lots of stuff. Um, and, and then just like say, well, well, we'll deal with like your maintenance issues over the course of however many months. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't have a good answer for it in part because at least in Israel, I found the clients are very sort of tied into the whole hourly thing. And so if I were to say to them, well, we'll charge you X per month for us to take care of whatever maintenance needs you have. The immediate answer, like, the sort of counter question would be, well, how many hours does this cover me for? So I'm definitely curious to hear how you would handle this so that you're not, you're neither sort of going broke nor charging crazy amounts. Right. Okay. There's a, there's a lot going on here. First thing is that maintenance work is not that profitable unless it's your main business or you're a giant mega corp and you have like sales teams that go out and sell huge support packages to uh, you know, enterprise customers. But f- I think for the, the typical freelancer, it's really not a great, it's not a high profit area. Let's put it that way. I know a lot of people are attracted to it for reasons like, oh, it'll be monthly recurring revenue. And my clients really want me to do it. So I feel like I should do it. 
you know, those sorts of things. Uh, like handing it off to somebody else or another developer would be harder than just, you know, and explaining the whole mess would be even harder than just maintaining it. It only takes me a couple hours a month, things like that. Uh, but in the, the scheme of things, it's a really, really low profit uh, activity to engage in. The, the client doesn't want to pay for it. They want things to just work. So when things break, they're probably happy to have access to you, but they're not going to be happy about paying for it, even if they broke things. Uh, it's, it's just, I mean, it's, you know, it's maintenance man work. It's janitorial work. It's not highly differentiated. A lot of people could probably do, you know, a lot of people are probably qualified to maintain a site once they get up to speed with how it's put together. It's just not high profit stuff. And the, uh, I don't think it's a great way to have recurring revenue. The, so, so what do you do? Right? So if, if a client's, you know, you, you built a website for somebody, you go, here you go. Uh, they're like, okay, great. You know, what happens if something happens? <laughs> what do we call? We can call you, right? And my answer would be, there's a bunch of ways to answer that. I would say no, but I'll put you in touch with someone who can do that sort of thing. That's their main thing. Or uh, maybe I put them on a service provider that has managed hosting and, you know, like WP Engine or something like that. Or uh, I could train up someone internally who's maybe a junior web developer who is capable of, you know, watching a few videos that I record and, and figuring out how to uh, repair something that might have gone wrong. That's what that's sort of uh, a post project way to address those issues, because you're I mean, in my opinion, in my experience, not just my experience, but the experience of lots and lots of developers, it ends up being close to zero profit work uh, like all the time, you know, if it's not your main thing. It seems like it's going to be, be fine, but it's really not. Uh, another thing you can do if you're if you are aware, if you're sort of mature enough in your business to recognize that when you sell someone a website build, they're probably going to need that later. It can be either part of your upfront guarantee or it could be an option that you add into your proposal. So client comes to you and says, Hey, we want you to build this highly customized WordPress site for us for some, you know, for the Olympics event that's coming up. Oh, that's a bad example because it's a one time. Site. So we, we want you to build this highly customized website for uh, this boutique brand that we're putting together. That makes more sense. And you say, okay, great. Uh, let's have a why conversation about that. I'll ask you why you want to do it like that. Why you want to do it now. Why you want someone like me and okay, get to the bottom of that. So you can give them a quote for the work and let's say the work is going to be $20,000, just to throw a number out there. Then you could have another option that says, and I'll tack on 12 months of, you know, bug free guaranteed maintenance for another $5,000 or something like that. And they can just, they get this one upfront payment. So they just never have to worry about it again. There's no question of how many hours uh, that you'll spend. It's not a monthly thing that their, their CFO is looking at every single month and being like, geez, we paid this guy 500 bucks again this month to do what? Nothing. Because the, the website was high quality. It doesn't have bugs. We don't, we aren't breaking things. Uh, you know, so it's like, uh, it's, it's a, it's a monthly payment that's easy to resent. So I would prefer to lump it in up front and say, you know, for the first year for 5,000 bucks, 
I'll make sure that everything is flawless. If anything happens, call me. I'll get back to you within X business hours. I'll give you an answer to what's going on and I'll give you an estimate how long it's going to take to fix. And you don't have to pay for it at all. And that's really, really hard for a company to resist, right? You're basically saying to them, pay me this amount of money and you will not have bugs, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it's a warranty, It's a warranty, right? But it's a warranty that they know because anyone who has any experience with software knows that there will be bugs, there will be problems. And I know, like, I mean, so I guess I had forgotten. I have this very small client where they begged me for a few years to do the development. I was like, no, I don't have time. No, I don't have time. Finally, they came to me after going through a whole bunch of other developers. They said, okay, we really need your help. So I and mostly my, my employee did a, a, like some development for them. And now they're coming back to us with some maintenance stuff. And it's all necessary maintenance stuff. But mm-hmm. they, they've got such a low budget that basically every time they ask to do something, it's like, oh, God. They, like, like they don't want to come to us because they're so worried about it. And they're sort of keeping us on a, a tight chain because, well, only do this uh, like the minimum possible. And I keep saying to them, okay, we are going to do the minimum possible. But it has to actually work. And you have to, like, you have to trust us. That we're not trying to waste your money here, and I think this is yeah, like a very your hands. It's a very extreme version of what clients are going to be like with the maintenance, but they're all going to be like this. Mm-hmm. But, well, I'm going to ask them to do it, but I really don't want to have to pay for it because I want to work on real features, not on fixing bugs. Mm. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's totally the thing about the thing about planning to offer a month-to-month maintenance plan after a website goes live is that it creates a perverse incentive for you to not do that good a job because you want bugs so that you can, you can justify your $500 a month or whatever it is monthly fee for fixing stuff. Because if everything's perfect for 12 months and they pay you 500 bucks a month, every single month, that's it's, it's a a begrudging amount. And it's been my experience anyway. So, I mean, I had this client who came to me a few years ago, and again, we like did some development for them, and he asked me to stay on um, sort of in a very, very small capacity. He said, I want to just make sure that there's someone I trust around so that like, if something goes wrong with the developer elsewhere, like you'll know what's going on with the, with, 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 like, with, with the system. I was like, okay, so he paid me not a lot of money. I think it was like, you know, maybe $500 a month. Exactly what you were saying, right? Just sort of be insurance. And mm-hmm. I kept thinking to myself, I, I guess, like, I'm not going to say no, but I kept saying that maybe I won't do this anymore. And originally it was even more. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. He said, well, I'll just keep you on, like, very low level just in case we really have an emergency. Well, then I guess about six months ago he comes to me and says, you know, we actually need some maintenance done on a uh, system. Would you be interested in doing it? I said, sure, here's a price quote. He said, well, how do we just take it out of the money I was paying you over the last two years? <laughs> wow yeah that's classic and i was like how, how about no, no no and i said no that's I, I said no he said but you didn't really keep up your end of the deal right did you really keep up with the code i don't think so so it's really not fair that you were taking our money <sighs> my response to that was i don't want Fire. any of your money anymore goodbye yeah <laughs> right okay. like it's not worth the 500 dollars a month if this means you're going to come to me and sort of try to cash in on it, you can't go to your insurance broker and say, by the way, I haven't really used that fire insurance because I haven't had any fires. I'd like it back. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. so you do need to worry about these sorts of things because they are, they're going to see it as just money sort of going away. Yeah. Yeah. So if you get it out of way, so here's the, here's the, the, what I think is the ideal option is that you use, some sort of bug free guarantee as a differentiator 
between anybody, you and anybody else who might be bidding on the job. So instead of breaking it out as a separate option, you'd say, you know, every, here's the project, you know, here are the three different options perhaps, but all three options include a 12 month bug free guarantee or a six month bug free guarantee or whatever you you're comfortable covering. And you say, you know, look, this, this quote is going to be more than any, any other quotes you get. It's going to probably be the most expensive one, but none of those other people are going to guarantee their work. And I do. So what that does is it differentiates you from your competitors. And it also gives you a really strong incentive to do a killer job the first time around. Right. Right. Cause you know, any bug that you have in there, it's going to be like, Oh, if only I haven't done this, I would be spending my time doing mm-hmm. something else. Which is exactly how your client right. wants to have you incentivized. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you switch off of hourly and you, you don't have an estimate out there that everybody's sort of feeling like is going to constrain the developer in some way. Uh, and it's just value based, <clears throat> the, you know, f- a fixed fee upfront, there is the, the a s- decent possibility that the client's going to be like, well, you'll probably just cut corners and try and get this done really quickly. And I can say, well, I've got this bug free guarantee. So no, I can't really do that. Or this project is going to take me a year longer than I, I expected. So the incentives are the, the financial incentives for the project to, to be delivered quickly and at a high quality are uh, there for both the client and the developer. We both want it done as quickly and as well as possible. Uh, we have, we have different financial incentives, but we both have financial incentives for that to be the outcome. So it's, uh, to me, that's the ideal scenario where you give them a fixed price that's very high compared to people who are just giving hourly estimates and not guaranteeing their work. And then you give them a guarantee that is somehow indicates quality. So it could be a bug free guarantee where you just go in and fix anything. Uh, it could be a satisfaction guarantee where, you know, if it hasn't been, if it doesn't meet their satisfaction for some reason, then you fix it. And if not, then you give them the money back. It depends on the, how big the project is, what kind of project it is. But I like the bug free guarantee for software projects. Now don't do how clever slash explicit you need to be. Cause I, I can imagine uh, clients of mine coming to me and saying, like, well, we want to do X and you know, we want you to fix X and Y and Z. And my response is, well, that's not really fixing. That's developing something completely new. And then we mm-hmm. reach this sort of impasse. Um, I mean, I don't think it would happen to any of the clients I have nowadays, but I can easily imagine mm-hmm. some of my former clients being like that. But what do you do in such a yeah, case? It helps to not work with people who you don't trust and who don't trust you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> um, you, you should not work with people who you don't trust, period. You could just have a crazy person sue you for no reason and completely put you out of business. It's you really should be picky about who you work with. But I understand that not everybody can be picky about who they work with. Uh, that said, I wouldn't go nuts trying to insulate myself with legal ease and that sort of thing, because you still if it comes down to a fight, you're still going to lose. So really, I think the best thing to do, the, the terminology I usually use with people who I feel a reasonable level of connection with, I say, you know, within I'll fix whatever happens within reason. Certainly there's a gray area on what defines a bug, but I'll do whatever is reasonable. So if that usually what happens there is that 
there's some bugs that you just didn't catch because maybe it's the kind of thing that only happens on a quarterly report or it doesn't happen until the website is under load or something. And those are the kind of things that most developers will be embarrassed by and would scramble to fix for free and would be happy to have the opportunity to do so. And then there's the gray area of like, um, you know, something's not broken technically, but it's more like, um, not preferred, you know, like they, they were using this system and they're like, you know, we never really asked for the fields to be in this order and customer service is getting kind of annoyed with it. It's kind of causing a problem. That's not a bug. It's definitely a change request. It's not really a new feature. And I would say for, if I really cared and I usually didn't, you know, back when I used to do stuff like this, I'd be like, you know, we can, uh, within reason, I'll move stuff around. I'll rearrange the furniture on a layout or whatever. But I'm not going to go nuts. If there's a bit, if there's a huge amount of work that you need or certainly any new feature requests, we'll do a new project. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And I'm kind of trusting them and they kind of have to trust me in a case like that. So, you know, is that ironclad? No, but you know, nothing is in relationships. Nothing's ironclad. So to, for me, that's been the, the approach that's worked for me. I mean, it's really coming through what you say now and what you say a lot of times is, you know, what they often say in economics, which is, right, it's all about the incentives and you want people to be incentivized to do the right thing. And I think you're definitely mm -hmm. right that when you um, sort of are charging by the hour first for development and then for maintenance, and let's face it, in, in many cases, I think one of the reasons why this sort of question comes up is it's so, so, so common to do a job, like to work on a project. And then you sort of hope that you'll just keep working with these people forever, doing additional development and doing maintenance and on, on, and on. And you can just, you know, sort of ride that gravy train for a while. Um, the problem is, of course, that you then have no incentive to do an amazing job because, well, they're just going to, they could pay you now, they could pay you later. And in some ways, it's nice to be paid later. So you just, like, keep going ahead and, oh, there was a bug, oh, well, you'll pay me for that too. Yeah. I'm not a fan of really long-term development relationships like that because they start to treat you like an employee mm -hmm. if they didn't start out that way in the first place. So there's a, there's a great blog post that perhaps I'll, we can link to in the show notes um, called The Four Phases of Client Engagement from Blair Ends at Win Without Pitching. And I've probably talked about this before, but there are four phases to an engagement the diagnosis, the prescription, the application, and the reapplication. And the value, the, the, the profitability, I should say, is highest at the beginning and lowest at the end. So if you are doing like a diagnostic for somebody, it's going to be really easy for you. If you're assuming you're experienced, it's going to be really easy for you. It's not going to take very long and it's going to be very high value to the right kinds of clients. So you can make a, uh, for a, a reasonable price, you can make a huge amount of profit. So very high effective hourly rate and deliver a lot of value to the client in a very short time, which they also like. Then the prescription phase is like when you tell them what to do. So the diagnosis is your problems are X, Y, and Z, or the root cause of your problems or your symptoms are X, Y, and Z. Have your internal team look into it. The, the next phase is you tell them what to do about it. So here are the recommendations I would make to solve the root cause problems of X, Y, and Z. Then the third phase is what almost everybody in the software development world operates in, which is the application of the therapy. So you go in and apply or implement the plan, the prescription. 
that's where almost everybody operates. And then, the, you know, and they get excited about monthly recurring revenue with maintenance, which is the fourth and final phase of the client engagement, which is reapplication where you're basically there just cleaning up puke from the hallway. It's like, there's just nothing, there's nothing good about it. So you want to always be optimizing your business, always looking for things in your business that based on your expertise, you can move up to stages one and two or closer to the beginning of the phases of engagement because that's where all the profit is. So when I hear about maintenance plans and support contracts, like I understand that some people feel like they should do them. They feel an obligation because, you know, I, I built this website, therefore I need to keep it up for the rest of my life. Um, some people feel that sort of personal obligation. I don't. And I set that expectation early on. And if, you know, I'll offer a guarantee for a certain period of time. And after that in throughout the period, it's like, you really should be taking ownership of this. I'm not going to be around doing this forever. I, well, I'm reminded in some ways of, uh, you know, this whole business of maintenance and, uh, incentives and bugs. Uh, I remember hearing, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, but I'm guessing not of the software company where they, paid uh, in engineers to fix bugs. Like they got a bonus. So of course, what do the engineers do? Well, they write buggy code and then they profit mm-hmm. from the fact that they fix all those bugs, which they can identify mm-hmm. strangely enough very quickly. And so people... <laughs> <laughs> Bug bounty. Yeah. So, so like definitely you want to sort of think about what you're incentivizing people to do. And I, I, I think, uh, I'm going to definitely have to think about the, like giving a, a, a guarantee in the future. I think that plus a flat fee also basically makes it hard to do the sort of apple to apple comparisons that people are looking for. Because people very often, if I'm giving mm-hmm. them a flat fee price, they're like, well, divided by X number of hours. So now I see how much you're, you're charging. And this makes it very hard mm-hmm. for them to make that comparison because it's just yes. a totally different plane. So, we, you know, we don't need to go down a huge rabbit hole in guarantees because I know that's kind of the third rail for developers. They okay. generally hate that idea. It's horrifying. But the, the basic question here was about offering maintenance. And, and, and I'm against it for people, unless you're starting out or I don't know, unless there's, it, it's something that you should be trying to move away from, not toward, unless it's your main business, unless you're planning on making it your main business. Well, let, let me ask that then. Like, so I've met a few people over the years who, and I, I think I know how this is different. I just sort of want to take your take on it, get your take on it, um, who see their main business as offering like specialized uh, upgrades, right? So there was like the, you know, Rails rescue services, right? Or PHP rescue services, where it's not exactly maintenance. Like it's not, not long-term maintenance, but you know that it's going to be a project where you come in and you're taking care of someone else's software and you're not adding new functionality. You're just getting it to the point where it can be tinkered with in the future. I mean, that seems to me to be a mm-hmm. fundamentally, fundamentally different kind of business for which you can charge a premium. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. So that's where somebody, you know, there's a, that, that's where somebody's gotten themselves into a jam. You know, client has, you know, it's the fail whale, right? Like client, my client's Twitter. That's not my client, but my client's Twitter, they're, their app was built by, you know, it was built as a proof of concept by some people who thought it was a cool idea. All of a sudden there's a, you know, 200 million users in it. And guess what? The servers are smoking. And, you know, so now they're in a situation where there's a clear benefit to, to getting the fire under control because their, their growth is spiking. Their 
all of a sudden they've got investors interested in them. They've got budget to fix this now. So you've got a situation where you've got a high risk project, you know, a project at risk. There's a high risk is very high and the urgency is very high. Whenever you have high risk combined with high urgency, there's a lot of potential profit to be made if your expertise overlaps with the problems that are there. Yeah. So that's not maintenance at all. Maintenance, I'm, maintenance is like, you know, the guy from breakfast club who's shambling around with a mop in the hallway. You know, you're just like someone to be told to kind of be bossed around. It's not, it's not the way I think professionals should, uh, it's not a goal. I don't think. Right. Okay. A good goal. So okay. maintenance plans, don't do it. <laughs> just a long answer. <laughs> so I've got this uh, longtime uh, friend and colleague, and he's been running his own agency, small agency, for a while. Um, and he decided to take some of say, our advice. Uh, and one of them was he really wanted to specialize. So he went through the exercise of writing down, like, which were his clients that he most liked working with that he wanted to continue working with. And basically, the list was zero clients long. <laughs> um, like he basically uh -huh. real he basically realized that all of his clients are like don't pay enough, don't like he might enjoy working with them, but like he just can't justify them business wise. Um, so, like, what do you do if you're in that sort of situation? Because like he couldn't even name yeah. someone that he's that like he would want to work with in the future. So he's been in his business mm -hmm. for a while. He's not just starting off. But um, you know, he wants to make it, I would say, either more profitable or profitable. So yeah. how, I mean, he's not quite in the same boat then as someone starting off. So like, what what should he do? Mm -hmm. I guess was his basic question to me. And I said, yeah. like, I said you should need to find like a totally different focus and totally different clients, um, and basically ease your way out of all of these. But that's easier said than done, of course. Yes, I mean, this is Philip's whole reason for being like this. <laughs> this stuff is like picking a vertical is is it's easy conceptually just pick one throw a dart he even jokes about throwing a dart at a list because that's better than not picking one but nobody will you know people don't do that they just won't stick like you need to go you need to convince yourself that what feels like a very risky decision which actually isn't but feels very risky you feel like you're betting your business on this decision and you have very little information to go on so it's just paralysis recipe for paralysis. So what I would say to your friend, probably if we were talking, what I would do is look for his street cred. I would try to find a credible story in his work that would allow me to, 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 to say, okay, this is a convincing story of expertise around something. So maybe, maybe his clients are all different, but maybe they're all, you know, maybe they all do different things, but maybe they're all nonprofits or maybe they're all higher ed or, or maybe they are in education somehow, or maybe they're in the health lifestyle and fitness or health space somehow. And it's kind of maybe a little bit of a stretch, but you can still kind of cobble it together or, you know, and that was sort of a vertical focus or it could be a sort of a horizontal thing where, uh, the person has got experience with lots of front-end web technologies or, or, or user experience for iOS or for any kind of graphical user interface. I'd look for some story that I could tell, you know, true story, but I would look for a, a true story that I could tell 
based on their experience that started to point them in a direction of expertise. So like, you know, you've been doing this stuff for, what did you say, 10 years? He's been more a, a developer. Okay. So the person's been doing something and there's got to be some common theme to it that you could say, you know, who I, it's so hard to do without talking to the person, but I would look for some thread there and then I'd say, okay, here's this expertise. Here's this story that we can say that will, that will be credible in a sales meeting or on a website or in marketing materials. Who's going to care about this story? Okay. Let's say that, um, you know, here's a, here's what are commonly considered a terrible market knitters or musicians or nonprofits. Everybody thinks, Oh, those people don't have any money. Which maybe is true that it kind of end user, the knitter end user may, you know, may, you know, think for a week about buying a $5 skein of yarn or a musician might be sleeping in his van and scraping together quarters to buy new nine volt batteries for his distortion pedal. But there's a lot in, in knitting and in musician, you know, music in the music space, just to pick two that aren't the, the frontline boots on the ground knitters or lead guitar players in a garage band. There are people who make the distortion pedals. There are people who make knitting needles. There are very successful businesses that have, that are in those verticals. Maybe think about focusing on someone who's farther up the food chain, but still in a vertical that speaks to your expertise. So, you know, maybe Sony records, if they still exist, I don't even know. Uh, or sound scan or, you know, somebody, uh, iMusic, maybe Spotify needs something or, uh, what's the, uh, Patreon. So there are businesses around that are making money in the space and you could perhaps serve them instead of, instead of thinking, you know, in other words, you see what I'm saying? Like if there's a, if there's a food chain, in a particular industry, maybe you're just at the wrong level of the food chain. Like you can't deliver enough value to, you know, a, a lead guitarist in a garage band, whether it's teaching lessons or, or whatever, uh, or making a website for his band. Maybe, maybe you can't create enough value in their life to justify any rate that you'd be willing to accept, but maybe his indie label or maybe, uh, some, uh, some website that, uh, you know, Bandcamp, maybe they can, maybe you can add value there. So you're still kind of, you know, you're still definitely in the music space, you know, or you, you know, whatever. I mean, there's to just say like, oh, musicians don't have any money. Let's move on. That's, uh, I don't think people are thinking about it big picture enough. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, 
FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Right. I mean, that makes all makes a lot of sense. By the way, like this friend of mine is uh, does graphic design and like sort of consulting to nonprofits. And so, yeah, mm. they generally he's been dealing with also like just smaller, less profitable ones, um, which is, I think, part of this frustration. Um, but you're right. You're right. There are definitely There's nonprofits a... out there that have lots of money. They might not be so eager to spend it right away until they see a business incentive. Like you can be sure that they're paying their fundraisers lots of money. Right. Yeah. So they, I mean, there's a site called GuideStar that I always throw in people's face when they tell me that nonprofits don't have any money. There's something like, there's something like 20 nonprofits that do over a billion dollars a year in revenue. And there's uh, like another 500 that do over a hundred million. So don't tell me there's no money in nonprofits. You know, there's, there is. The question, when somebody says that, when someone thinks your price is too high, it's not because they're being cheap. It's because they don't see the value in what you're offering. So your, your solution there is to figure out what they value or, or how to put it in a way that they're going to recognize the value that you see. Right. Very true. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> it's doable. Um, okay. My turn. Yeah. Jump over to. Mr. G, who asks, uh, Mr. G writes in to say, hey, Jay, so if I'm on a project and the client asks for one of these ancillary services like, or asks for an ancillary service like, hey, would you mind sitting in on a meeting with the CEO? What should my response be if that's something I actually charge for? In other words, if it's outside of the scope of the project I'm working on for them, how do I politely say, I'd love to do that for you, but you're going to have to pay for it? <laughs> so this question is, uh, is actually a follow-up to a, a previous, uh, it's an email question to follow up to a, a previous message. So I'll give you a little bit of context and it's a nice segue from the previous question that I was talking about, uh, with the four phases of customer engagement. So if you're, if you're a software developer and normally what you do is, is code, like you normally code. And maybe you get paid by the hour for it. You probably do. Maybe you give fixed prices. But normally you code. So you're at stage three of the phases of client engagement, the application phase. While you're working on that, I have people keep their eyes peeled, or their ears peeled, I guess, for these sort of side questions that come up in conversation sort of casually, like after a meeting ends or you're meeting with the client and you're in the hallway after the meeting, or they send you a, a sort of out of band email outside of the project management system. And they'll say, Hey, you know, you, we were talking the other day just casually about uh, security concerns. And I was wondering if you could jump into a meeting with the CEO because we're, you know, thinking about buying a company and we'd like somebody to tell us what we should watch out for. So a situation like that is, your, your antenna should go bing. This is head work. This is not hands work. They're not asking me to come in and type a bunch of semicolons. They want me to think about something and give them my expert opinion about it. So they trust me. 
either through our relationship or through the conversation we had about this particular area of expertise. But for some reason, they trust me. They want my advice about this. So I think the wrong thing to do in a situation like that, well, I think you should be trying to get those kinds of opportunities. Like I said before, you should try to be moving up the value chain to prescriptive and diagnostic types of engagements. And <clears throat> so I think the thing that you should not do in that situation, especially with an existing client is be like, yeah, I'd love to do that, but you're going to have to pay me to sit there and give you my advice. It's too soon to do that. You're kind of looking the gift horse in the mouth because they see you as a pair of hands, as a coder, and they're giving you this opportunity to, to in their minds, reframe your position in the, uh, the firm or your value, your uh, value to the company or whatever it is. So you have this opportunity to kind of be promoted in their minds in a sense. And if you just immediately act like a mercenary and be like, no, uh, you know, I'm not going to spend an hour doing that. I got to get paid for my time. You're just acting like a mercenary, which is where the word, you know, the word freelance comes from mercenary. So, hmm, who knew? I didn't, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. Freelance. So, okay. So that would be a mistake in this context where you, you are, you're working for them doing coding. They ask you to basically come into the, the come up the value chain a little bit, you go do it. And you, you, in fact, you should refuse if they offer to pay you for your time because that would devalue what's about to happen. So you go into that meeting and essentially you're going to treat it like a sales meeting. So you go in there and they're going to say, Hey, we've got these, you know, we're thinking about buying this company, uh, but it's e-commerce. We've never been in e-commerce before. Uh, we understand there's different security concerns around that and that you know about those things. What should we be watching out for? So what I would do in that situation is I would, I would tell them everything that you know off the top of your head in that meeting, you know, get, deliver as much value as you possibly can. Uh, I wouldn't do any homework leading up to it. I wouldn't prep for it at all. I would just be completely off the cuff. I would go in there, I would do that. Assuming it went well and there was some series of steps that they should probably take after the meeting was over, I would, I would sort of finish the meeting by saying, you know, look, <clears throat> we've got this ongoing project you know, doing the website development thing. But I do have bandwidth to take this security issue on for you, whether a roadmap, whatever is needed, like a roadmap or a security audit or uh, a, a system architecture or uh, even a punch list of things that they should check for. I've got bandwidth to do that for you. Would you like me to write up a proposal? So essentially what you've done is you turn this, this little situation into yes, probably 30 minutes to 60 minutes of some, mostly you listening, but giving away some free advice. And at the end of it, you're saying, you're basically saying by offering to write a proposal that that's it. You're not going to, you're not going to keep on following up on this. You're not going to introduce them to anyone. You're not going to be doing more research into the technologies involved. Nope. You were happy enough to do a favor for them, uh, just sort of professional courtesy. We've been working together. I'm happy to help but I'm not going to, you know, keep doing this for free. So if you just, would you like a proposal? If they say yes, the odds are very high that you're going to have your first expertise project, your first advisory only project, which is great. Fantastic. Now there's a question of how do you price it, but that's separate. But if they say no, now you've at least gotten some uh, market intelligence. You've done some market research. You've found out what's valuable to these people and why. 
you perhaps have an idea for a product that you could offer because now it's kind of like uh, front and center in your mind that, wow, I, I actually know what I was talking about. Like I knew way more than those people knew meeting and they really, really need this kind of help. There must be other people like that out there. Maybe I should offer this as a service. I can just, for my memory and for my notes, I can pull out some of the language that was used by the client and I can put that on a sales page and I can start to sell that. So it's, it's really beneficial for both parties. And you've got this insulation because if after that meeting, the client keeps on trying to like say, Hey, you know, I, you know, well, I got another question about that security thing. Then you've set expectations that, you know, this is going to be, you set expectations in a way that you can shift into sales mode at that point and not look like a jerk, you know, because they're the ones that are kind of being rude by trying to ask for more free advice. So you could say, uh, well, did you guys change your mind about the proposal? And the person will sort of either sheepishly say no or yes, or you can be, you know, and, and if they say yes, then great, I'll have that together for you tomorrow. We can talk about it. And if they say no, you can just sort of, you know, coyly laugh or whatever. <laughs> just be like, yeah, okay then. If it's not that important to you, I'm not going to look into it. So that's that that was uh, another long answer. I'm famous for those. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Believe me, that's that's why I teach in full day increments. Um <laughs> that's the answer so one question I, I a day. Think, yeah, the bottom the bottom line is People tend to freak out. A lot of times, for some reason, I don't know how I send off this vibe, but people are often shocked to hear that I don't charge for every single second I spend on something. You know, it's like, I'm not like that at all. I don't charge for my time at all. So I don't know where people get that idea from. You know, like, I can't believe Stark would go in and give away his expertise for a full hour in a meeting. That's, doesn't that devalue what he does? No. If I, I'm not going to take somebody's money... I'm not going to be like, oh, you got to pay me a thousand bucks to come and sit in that meeting. I don't want to take somebody's money until I'm reasonably confident that I can give them a positive ROI from it. Because if we get to the end of the meeting and it turns out it was completely out of my area of expertise, I'm going to want to just give them their money back because I delivered no value. So why should I take their money? You know, so it kind of like the concept of not charging for your time cuts both ways. It allows you to dramatically scale up your profits, but it does mean that you can't charge for two hours a time when you've done nothing positive for the client. You, it's just, it's, it's, uh, two sides of the same coin. So I have a few things to add to this, although I think you gave, uh, a, a, a lot of very good answers there. So first of all, I think as a general rule, if someone comes to you and says, Hey, would you like to meet with the CEO? The answer is <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Like this is, this is not something you debate or think about because the the if you say yes it will almost certainly lead to something great if you say mm -hmm. no it will at best not change things for the better and at worst be like who does this guy think he is not coming meeting with the ceo right you i think i can't remember if you say it or if brennan says it or both of you like you want to be close to the money in a company and the ceo basically mm -hmm. has infinite spending ability because they get to decide. It's like I'm talking to someone now about doing uh, corporate retreats for um, East Asian engineers here in Israel. He was like, yeah, we can charge them $16,000 for a week. Oh, plus travel expenses, plus hotel, because they're the CEOs. <laughs> and they can, like, they can expense whatever they want, more or less. They're in charge. So if someone says, do you want to be with the CEO? Fantastic. Do it. Secondly, I think all your points were totally on target, but it's even 
like more than that, in that let's say nothing comes of it. You will probably, if you did a good job, be remembered by them. And it might take a month, it might take six months, it might take two years. But someone from that meeting, maybe the CEO, remember people in high tech tend to move around a lot, will remember mm-hmm. you. And they will call you at some point and say, hey, I'm sorry we couldn't do work together then, but I've got a problem that I think you might be the right person for. And you will be completely surprised by this, but it will happen, assuming, of course, you did a good job, right? Um, right. Yeah, that's a, that's taken for granted. It's like you have to know what you're talking about. Right. Don't, don't mess up. Um, mm. And, uh, oh, I had another point. I also can't remember what, exactly what it was. But, like, this is just, like, you definitely, definitely, definitely want to talk. Although I know what it was. Your, your point about, like, not uh, charging for your time or not charging for such a meeting. So I used to worry about this a lot. I used to worry, well, like, if I go meet with someone, I give them lots of consulting over the course of an hour. Like, I just gave, like, I meet with them for an hour and I give them some advice. They're going to be like, ha, what a sucker that Reuben was. We got free consulting from him. That does not happen. Instead, they say, wow, if that's what we got after half an hour, an hour of meeting with him, think of what we're going to get if we engage him for a longer project. And if you are truly an expert, there's no way on God's great earth that you can give them all your knowledge in an hour or even a week or even in a month. It's just not going to happen. And so you shouldn't see it as giving your information away for free. You should see it as giving them a taste of how great it will be to work with you and why they should hire you. And again, if you do a good job, that will happen. Yep. It's a good first date. Right. I mean, the, the flip side of this is the, the flip side of this is, well, what if I have so many meetings like this set up that I don't have time to do my work? You, you don't, you know, right. you don't, <laughs> You have, you'll probably have one or two of these meetings a year. So, you know, when you're starting out, getting leads is like the toughest thing. So it, it's not like they're going to, your, your schedule is going to be overwhelmed with tire kickers. So I, you know, but I suppose I, I do, I have set up boundaries over time. Like I don't meet people for coffee. That's just way too much of a time suck. It's like, I'll jump on the phone. If you can't jump on the phone, we're not meeting. So, you know, there are some things. I mean, there's another way to attack this also, which is if you are truly being inundated by people just wanting to pick your brain for an hour or two, um, then you should probably think about road mapping, right? Because then um, you're spending time basically pitching to clients. And um, if, if there's so many people who want to pick your brain, then say, fine, I'm happy to do that. But I do it as part of an initial road mapping meeting. So you can you know, come out of that meeting with a strategy document that'll be worth something to you. I charge such and such, such, and such for that. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, I haven't done that many road mapping projects. I've done like three or four of them, but first of all, they're super fun. And they're exactly what you said about like the different stages of consulting where it's like very early on using your brain, very high level, incredibly easy for someone with expertise to do. Um, and they value it a lot. Um, yeah. so, so I would say move to that. If you find that you're getting lots of calls, because people have obviously want to hear what you have to say. So charge them for it. I mean, at least in that sense. But then that's changing your business also. It's not saying I'm going to give these meetings away so that they'll be incentivized to hire me as an expert. It's I'm going to meet with them because I'm going to produce a product and the combination of the meeting and the product are going to be are, are going to you know, be worth it that they'll want to pay me. Yeah, I mean, even when I sell a roadmap, there's usually a free contact first. People almost never are going to just buy a roadmap site unseen. They'll eat. A lot of times they'll just be like, I'm not sure which 
product of yours is the right thing for me? Should I be thinking about a, a one-off consulting call? Should I be thinking about a roadmap? Should I just take the class? You know, I, I don't know which one. To, and then I have to ask them a few questions and it's kind of like a meeting, you know, and, yes. and okay, fine. So you're still going to do it. But I, I want to reiterate your point about the, 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 earlier stages of the client engagement, diagnostic and prescriptive stages for me too, are by far the most fun. They're the best part of the gig. And you probably do and dear listener, you probably do them already, but you're doing them at the beginning of an hourly project as just, or doing them for free to get the project so that you can do the implementation work. So, you know, I think there's a, I actually have another question that I was thinking about adding to the pile about what's a roadmap. What's, how do you find the value of a roadmap? What is the value of a roadmap and stuff like that, which we could perhaps go to, but yeah, I, you're, if, if somebody wants to have a meeting with the CEO, you do it. I've gotten on a plane on my own for my own money. Just me bought a plane ticket and got a hotel room to go have one of these meetings. And it turned into like, I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars of work. You know, you, you just, you do it. It's part of the sales process. Like you're gonna, you have to do that. So even if you do charge for roadmaps, you're still going to have, you know, free conversations. So I think we, cool. we might have time for another quick question. If you've got one, otherwise we can rack up. Oh rack man, that one by fast. Yeah. I just looked at the time um, myself. We should, geez, uh, my next one might be, what do you think? I, I kind of would be interested to hear your answer to this. So someone wrote it, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the entire message in front of me, but the concept is, okay, smart guys, if I specialize on a vertical, how do I reuse code from client to client? Can I reuse code from, you know, one client in the credit union vertical to the next client in the credit union vertical probably have to write the same thing or something roughly similar a bunch of times. How do you do that? Or can you do that? How do you address with the client? So have you, have you ever been in that situation, Ruben? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the, the short answer is don't do it. The slightly longer answer is probably don't do it. And the longer answer to that (laughs) is, if you're smart, you can probably avoid it to some degree, but not completely. So let me elaborate a little. As a general rule, I mean, and I'm not a lawyer, right? Got to, got to put in that disclaimer. As a general rule, if you're working on code for someone, it's it's what's known as a work for hire, right? Your mm-hmm. client owns the code. And it doesn't matter how lovingly you crafted it and how it exudes your DNA all over the code. It belongs to the client. So as a general rule, then... If you go and work for a client, do something, and you're like, wow, this library would be great for lots of verticals in you know, other companies in this vertical. And then you get a call the next day from another company in that vertical saying, can you implement something similarly? If they find out, you could be in really big trouble because you're basically using company A's code in company B's stuff. Hmm. Now, you can get around that in some ways. One way is to put in your contract that's not work for hire that you stole in the code. I don't know if people will go for that, but you can try. Um, but there is I have, a, a, I have oh, yeah. a bunch of people who have told me that they do that all the time. Oh, really? Wow. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, yeah. I, I agree with you. I'm a, I'm a total work for hire guy when it comes to software dev. 
but I've had plenty of people that dozens tell me that they, they never allow the client to own the code. They grant them a, a worldwide perpetual license to reuse it. Wow. And I was like, wow, that's, I'm surprised, but okay. I'm surprised they allow that, but you know, world's a big mm-hmm. place. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now the thing is, you can structure in different ways. And one thing I've done, I can't remember if I emailed you about this when I saw you mention the code thing. Um, I had in my contract with people that, uh, with companies that, um, if I modify open source libraries, uh, or open source code, um, in their service, then that retains its open source license. And that basically sort of incentivizes me and them to use open source stuff, but then they, they can't then like claim, oh, well, you changed X and Y and Z, so now it belongs to us, right? It's not part of the work for hire. But someone told me years ago that if you come into a project with your own libraries that you developed independently, then those belong to you and they're not part of the work for hire. And you might need to like put that in your contract or negotiate like, you know, libraries that we come in with demonstrate expertise are part of are, are our stuff. Then you're totally okay with it, or at least so I've been told. Um, so, so that's like, if you know you're going to be in a vertical, then it might make sense to sort of invest some time and effort working on libraries that you can then sort of say, well, I'm coming in with this and we're going to modify them for your project, but we're going to use them elsewhere. But I definitely mm-hmm. had employees reuse code on things and I got really furious with them um, because I was terrified that if someone found, like, like beyond the ethics of it, right? If someone finds out, I'm not interested in being on the receiving end of a lawsuit um, from someone mm-hmm. or another saying that, you know, I, I used code that belonged to them. Right. There's a, I, I'm on the same page with you, like all, all of that. I think we might be a little old schooler because the, the <laughs> people I know who don't do it like that are all much younger than we are, but okay. But there's another, another sort of, I think a side, a related thing to do, which is, this is another thing that people sent in to me was that they'll open source their own code. And it's kind of what you just said, but there's no, they're not like private proprietary libraries that you've developed in house. They're like, you know, I created a, a touch, a photo swipe gallery and it's on GitHub and you put in the contract, anything that's open source stays open source. I created some of them, but I didn't create all of them. I mean, like I did a, I did some front end work for entertainment weekly a while back. They don't think they own jQuery just because I used it on the project, (laughs) you know? So, you know, the same thing, I didn't do this, but I could have, I made a, a, a bunch of little jQuery plugins or whatever they call them. I can't even remember. It's been so long that yeah, jQuery plugins. I made, you know, half a dozen really cool jQuery plugins that would be easily reusable for kind of cool, sort of cooler interface features in a really advanced website. But I, you know, I didn't really care, but I I could have reused them. I I could have done that. I suppose it certainly would have made sense. And in fact, I do have some open source libraries that I have used in a bunch of places. It's just never come like come up in conversation with anybody. So I'm not really sure legally. I'm not really sure where it stands, but they're, they're available for free on GitHub. So, you know, who knows? I think the bigger question about this is why would you want to reuse code if you build by the hour? Oh, clearly if you build by the hour, you're not interested in doing that. Right. So I get people all the time that are like, oh, I build by the hour. I want to reuse this code, but how do I <laughs> charge for it? I'm like, you can't. You build by the hour. <laughs> They're like, but that doesn't feel right. I'm like, yeah, hourly billing's nuts, right? So you don't even need to worry about this question if you build by the hour. 
this is this is strictly for people who are giving fixed prices. And you can imagine if you have enough of these little libraries, in, you know, and you're working with a group of people who often benefit from the same sorts of libraries and you're giving fixed prices, you can work less and make more. Hmm. That sounds good. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I think we've reached uh, the end of our time. Uh, so we should probably do picks and then get to more questions next time around. Sound more professional and stay connected with Grasshopper, the virtual phone system designed for entrepreneurs. Grasshopper works like a traditional phone system that requires no hardware to purchase or software to install. It's all managed online or by phone. Callers can reach you wherever you are on your cell, in your office, or at home. Or you can set up custom mailboxes where people can leave you a message. Grasshopper is what I use for devchat.tv listeners to leave messages related to our conferences and podcasts. Go check them out at trygrasshopper.com slash devchat and get 50% off on your order. Once again, to get 50% on your order, go to trygrasshopper.com slash devchat. So, cool. you, got any, you got any picks? Uh, yes. First is season premiere of Game of Thrones. Very... Happy with, very happy with it. They brought the, they brought the, uh, delivered on my very high expectations. Big Game of Thrones fan. Um, so I guess that's because everyone's going to love that. But here's one that you haven't heard of. Uh, Tim O'Reilly, the guy who founded O'Reilly Media and all the O'Reilly animal books. He spoke at a conference called Aspen future or Aspen thought or something. We'll put a link in the show notes, but he did a video. He was interviewed by a guy from the New York times about his new book, which is called what's the future. And it's all about the potential effects of things like AI, but technology in general on the workforce. And, you know, are people really going to be unemployed in droves or are the kinds of jobs that people do uh, can do or will do, can they change? It was, it was really good. There was a, he even touched on hourly billing in a, a, the middle there for a second, but you could check it out and it's about an hour long and it's, he's just a super insightful guy. He's been around technology for years and years and years, and he's got a really great perspective on it. Plus he's a super optimistic guy. So, um, I think it's really good. Let's check that out. Very good. So I'm going to, I have two picks. Uh, one is I've been still getting deeper and deeper sort of into drip and doing cool things with it. Um, and for those of you who haven't played with automatic workflows, um, in drip, um, it's, it's amazing. It's really like, it basically is coding of, um, email lists and contacting people and choosing who and how and what. And, uh, just yesterday I was like, well, what I really want to do is send something automatically to all my subscribers every like 30 to 45 days. Um, like, you know, message like this, a message like that, like, you know, tell me what your problems are. I'd love to hear from you. Um, cause actually I would like to hear from them. And I don't want to have to have a message after 30 days, after 60 days, after 90 days. And it turns out you can basically do loops within them and you can totally do that. And I was very impressed by their service and support who got back to me within a few hours and told me how to do it in excruciating detail. Uh, much to, like, I was really quite surprised and impressed. 
the other thing is that if we're talking about um, you know TV shows and so forth, so my wife and I were big fans of The Good Wife, uh, that show, and while I'm a few months late uh, to figure it out and take a look at it with my wife, uh, the sort of sequel spinoff of The Good Fight is something we've been watching, and it is, uh, I would say, at least as good, and definitely sort of interesting and fun, and, and uh, so if you like that show, I definitely suggest you watch it, and it's uh, basically online, so they can uh, sort of compete with HBO, maybe not to the same degree as Game of Thrones, but in terms of uh, language at least. No sex and violence yet, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Jonathan, thanks a lot, as usual, for the great conversation. Thanks to all of you great for yeah. listening. And uh, we'll be back next week here on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.